to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by FunkinStuff.net, this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership R&B vocalist and composer Marva King, who since 1981 has distinguished herself as a solo artist, in-demand session singer, and from 1997 to 2011, a member of Prince's New Power Generation. She can be heard on several Prince projects and shared the stage with him as well. Among the other well-known music stars she has recorded with are the Gap Band, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, Steph Stephanie Mills, Bobby Brown, Phil Collins, Peebo Bryson, Diana Ross, Stevie Wonder, Jeffrey Osborne, and Shaka Khan. She's also performed with Seal, Lenny Kravitz, and the Isley Brothers, and co-wrote the hit Innocent, which was a million seller for the Whispers in 1990. The most recent of her six solo albums, that part was released on her own label in 2019. Marva, thank you for joining the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Scott? 
I am well, thank you. So good to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. You're looking lovely as always. And where are you coming to us from today? Los Angeles, California. <laughs> and so that's been home for how long about? Oh, gosh. Since I left Michigan, oh, God, in the earlier 80s. <laughs> so I've been here pretty long time. I travel a lot. So I'm in a lot of different areas of the country. But this is where I reside. This is where I've been since I left uh, high school. Uh-huh. Well, I was out there as well. I'm, I'm from there. Uh, I was out there until okay. 2006. Then I came out to uh, Charlotte. But um, so I know it pretty darn well. And I kind of miss it, miss some things about it. Yeah, the weather. The weather and some of my, no you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, well, thank you for making time to do this. Appreciate it. and been looking forward to talking music with you. Likewise. So, we talked about where you are now, but where you came from, you're from Flint, uh, Michigan, I believe, right? That's correct. And so uh, tell us a little bit about how you grew up and how music became so central in your life. Well, I grew up in a musical family. Both my parents are singers. Well, my dad has passed on, but my mom and dad both were singers, songwriters. Uh, my mom is a musician, she's a piano player. And um, so I was always around the piano from an early age and watching quartets in the living room rehearse. Kind of remind me of that Tina Turner scene when you see them all in the living room with the band and all of them. Uh, so I watched that a lot and I got a chance to see everybody perform, listen to the different voices, sopranos down to tenors and baritones. So I took in a lot of music by the time I was three or four years old. Um, so that's that's our home. How our household was filled with music, a piano. Um, like I said, the band would bring over guitars and amps and things like that. So of course, I was very much attracted to it. Didn't know if I wanted to pursue it, but I definitely was enjoying it. You know, growing up as a kid. And so that's that's how my childhood was until gosh, till my teenage years, and. Um, you know, I continued with music, but I kind of broke away from my parents and their tutelage and, you know, all the programs and things that they would set up, <clears throat> excuse me. But um, yeah, my life, it, it was already kind of dictated. I think when I came in the world, <laughs> it was already dictated. Were you a precocious little girl performing or were you kind of shy or what? I was very shy. I was ex painfully, extremely shy didn't matter to my mom. She still threw me back out on that stage. Every time I felt like I didn't want to do it, she would do it anyway and say, hey, this is what you're going to do. We rehearsed it. And then I developed a little following me and one other young lady that sang with me. She was two years older. So by the time I was seven, I was doing shows all over the city and on radio programs and things like that. I love the radio programs because they couldn't see me. <laughs> But uh, the live performances were painful. They were painful. And I was opening for people like Shirley Caesar, who's a gospel great, and uh, Five Blind Boys of Alabama, and just all these gospel, the mighty clouds of joy. I'm on shows with them, you know. And at that time, of course, I appreciated Shirley Caesar because my mom would listen to her religiously at our home. And um, 
but the rest of them, I was like, okay, they're good, they're good quartets, but to me, like, they're about as good as my dad's <laughs> group, so it wasn't that big a deal, but when I got older, I realized, wow, these were legends that were at your home, um, that were on shows that you would open for, and um, so, you know, I'm proud to say that I was amongst all of these uh, legendary performers, and hopefully I took in some of what they put out, and able to display that in my performances and recordings and things. Wow, that's impressive company there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what did you gravitate toward uh, in your own musical tastes once you got maybe into your teen years and kind of started, you know, cultivating your own tastes? Well, I continued in gospel music, of course, because like my mom said, as long as you're under my roof, you will be doing gospel music. So I would do that. And I enjoyed it too. I was in little um, quartets of my own. Um, I was in several groups. I was in gospel, like city choirs and state choirs and things like that. So I traveled and I, that's where I was on shows with the Clark sisters and met Maddie Moss and all of them and just was mesmerized by those people. But I also got into R&B and so, because of course I was listening to it, it just wasn't very much of that played in our household, but I would go to the neighbors and I was in talent shows and things like that from the time actually at elementary school. They, they called me soul sister when I was nine years old, did my first talent show at a high school and um, did a song called Love Makes a Woman. If you remember that song by Barbara, oh, I can't remember her last name. She was an art, artist. Um, and it's love that makes a woman, ooh, that makes a woman. Remember that song? You know Sounds familiar. Is? Sounds familiar, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Love Makes a Woman. It was a big record at that time. I did that, and I did Aretha's Respect. And um, so, you know, by the time I got to be in junior high, I definitely felt like I wanted to be part of the music industry, not just doing it, you know, at church or... Uh, talent shows. I thought about it being a career at that point. And um, so I would listen to a lot more secular music and my perspective in terms of styles, they started to broaden around that time. By the time I was in high school, um, I really, I was a huge Stevie Wonder, um, Earth, Wind and Fire, Shaka Khan fan, Denise Williams, all those people, the emotions. Oh, I was just in love with them. And um, I, I said, gosh, I, I gotta be amongst these people. So I moved to California relatively quick. And um, within what I'll say a year and a half, I was working with Stevie and it just kind of snowballed from there. I just kept working with all these different great people that I grew up listening to and I was such a fan of. So anyway, I have to say it's good life. <laughs> How did you kind of uh, start making connections once you came out to California? It wasn't very easy because I didn't know anybody here. Um, I was sent here. I won this state talent show and it got kind of hot for me in my little city. Uh, there was a lot of envy and actually I, I feared for my life, to be honest with you, um, because there were so many great musicians, artists that came out of Flint and out of a day-long talent show that went on for about maybe 14 hours. Uh, there were people come from all over the state and it's like this little skinny girl won and people were in shock because, you know, most of them didn't know who I was. So 
they were just in shock and I won. And, and after that, I just left, came to LA and one person who wanted to manage me, she said, I know some people there and they'll take care of you and all that, none of that worked out. She sent me to a label and there was a gentleman at that time, I was in my teens still. There was a gentleman that could have been my, probably my great grandfather <laughs> when I went to the label. It didn't work out so well with him. He was just kind of goo-goo-eyed We saw me. So I never went back for my record deal. And it was at a major label too, but I never went back. And I just would go around to shows and um, try to get in talent contests and things like that and kept making a big mistake of telling everybody else from Flint, Michigan. And didn't realize the Californians were like, we sick of these people from the Midwest coming and taking our jobs. So they would never pick me. They would never choose me. And I go, wow, this person is twirling in a circle like a poodle. They won over me? That's what I'm thinking. So I didn't get it till later. It took me about four shows. And I said, stop saying that you're from Michigan. Just don't tell people that. And um, not that I ever won, but you know, I got some favor with people. And um, there was a cassette that was recorded while I did a show and it was played to Stevie Wonder. And he set up an audition that night and I went and wow, I got chosen. <laughs> so life kind of changed after that. Whoa, what year was that? Oh gosh, that was in 1979, 79, 80, 1979, 1980. That was 1980. <laughs> yeah, so right around the hotter than July era for Stevie. That's exactly right. His birthday was yesterday. This won't be aired, aired for a while, but uh, belated, or yeah, belated at this point. Happy birthday, Stevie, Aww. for sure. Um, yeah. Always one of my very favorites too. Oh yeah. Genius. Um, yes. <laughs> what What was it like being in his presence or meeting him that first time? Um. I was, I, don't, I, don't, I can't even, ex, I can't explain how I felt because I was a fan. And to be honest with you, it's not arrogance, but I just wasn't a fan of many artists, most artists growing up. I, I could appreciate artists, but music was around me so much that, I don't know, it's certain people that I really gravitated towards and he was one of them. <laughs> and I had just read an article four months before I met him about Denise Williams and how she started with him and everything. And I said, wow, I wish that could be me. And when I had the opportunity and I said, this is really gonna happen. It's like I spoke it into reality and I just stood in the room. I was so nervous um, and the band was watching and you know they all were quiet. And I said, okay, I am so scared. But when he sat down at the piano and started playing and said, um, what would you like to sing? For some reason, I don't know, the calmness of his voice or whatever it was, it just kind of soothed me and I could relax enough to think again. And I told him the two songs, This Masquerade and Yesterday by the Beatles. I said, I want to sing those. And I did. And I got a standing ovation by the band. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> he really liked me or they liked me. And uh, he said, don't get the big heads. And I said, oh God, no, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm thinking I'm in front of Stevie Wonder. So even after that though, um, you know, of course he has eyes everywhere. And his set of eyes that he rely on the most was his road manager. And he said, um, she looks really young. I don't know, we, we need to ask her a few more questions. And he said, really? He said, yeah, 
So when we started to talk afterwards, because I wanted to know, what are you thinking? You know, are you interested in using me or just what? And he said, well, I heard that you're kind of young. He said, how old are you? And I'm thinking, I don't want to say the wrong number because <laughs> I was in my teens, but I was like, oh God. So I had to think for a second. I said, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm 20. And he said, that's not what I heard. And then I panicked because I'm thinking, did I tell somebody my age? <laughs> and he said, um, I heard you look like you're about 14. He said, how old are you really? And I said, I'm 20. And he said, so you just look really young. And I said, yeah, I said, I promise you. I said, I got out of high school, everything. I said, I have my diploma. So I'm following him out the door. He was walking. So he said, I don't know. I don't know. He said, because, you know, you might be a little young. He said, we're going on the road. And I said, no, I'm fine. And, you know, I talked to him until he got to the door where he was about to get in the car. And he said, and you probably want to be a solo artist, don't you? And I said, no. I, I just want to sing with you. I said, I just want to be a backup singer. Well, he said, I'll think about it. And he did. He thought about it the next day. I got a phone call from the road manager and said, show up for rehearsal at four o'clock. And I could have jumped through the ceiling. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's how that started. So you, you toured with Stevie? Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. I did quite a bit of touring with him. Initially, no. Um, initially, see, we rehearsed for, oh gosh, maybe a couple months. And we went out on the road. Um, he had Secret Life of Plants album out. I don't know if you remember that project, mm -hmm. but um, I had a feature in that show. And it was one that Sarita she sang and it was such a beautiful song called Come Back as a Flower. Mm. And uh, so we did the East Coast in the dead of winter, <laughs> it was bad weather. Um, but we hit New York and Philly and that was the first time I'd ever been in any of those places in Chicago and of course my home state, Michigan. And um, we had an orchestra, it was amazing. That was like, whoa. That was incredible. <laughs> and when I sang my solo, I had a whole orchestra behind me. So I was in heaven, to be honest with you. And, uh, but I was still terrified because I'm looking at these huge audiences and, you know, I hadn't done shows like that before. Um, but it was only for two weeks. It was for two weeks and we came back and then we were supposed to go out again several months later. But as soon as I set foot on LA soil, I get a phone call for one of the horn players who had been playing with Stevie for years. And he had just started a new gig with um, Richard Perry. Richard Perry started his label through Electric Asylum. And he said, Marva, had you ever thought about um, being a solo artist? And I said, well, yeah. And then he said, do you have any material? And I said, yeah, it just happened to cut a few songs I had written and recorded with one of the band members. And I gave it to him. And, within what, two hours, they said, can you be on Sunset Boulevard at Planet Records? And I'm like, what? So I get dressed and I go down there and Richard Perry saw me. He said, you're just what I'm looking for. Just what I'm looking for. He said, I love your music. I love your voice. He said, I love your look. And he said, that's it. So I'm thinking, okay. He said, give me your attorney's information. I'm sending a contract. <sighs> so <laughs> I didn't wow. stay with Stevie even a whole year. I almost made it a year. 
and uh, he was not too happy when I left. Though. <laughs> he wasn't too happy. Wow, things things moved quickly for you. That's yes. incredible. Um, and I remember, I've seen so many concerts, but none better than Stevie Wonder at the LA Forum in 1980. Oh, ah, so, you were there. I was there. Yeah, I was there. Wow, wow. I still wow. have the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, that was an amazing concert. It was it was star studded backstage. Oh my God! And I was sitting there going, okay, because it's one thing to do a show in Detroit, Michigan, or Chicago, you know, or Philly, um, and even New York, but L.A. All the stars were there then. Everybody was on the West Coast, so I'm in backstage and looking every direction I look. I'm like, wow, there's Teddy Pendergrass. Oh, wow, there's Rick James. Oh, wow, there's, you know, I was just going on and on. Said, wow, look at all these people. And I said, okay, that's how they do it in Hollywood. Hmm. Yep, yep, in the Lakers' house too. I mean, it was yep, all just showtime right? at that time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good times. Um, so, wow, you got that first record deal and uh he brought out i mean just you know i was looking at the credits on that record just amazing there's a cast of like thousands it seems that you know helped on that record so many great musicians and and people were part of that album so what was that experience like for you oh my um it was good you know um i've had a lot of training a lot of good training and so, and I had a mom who was sharp and she kind of like, she was a drill sergeant taskmaster <laughs> type. So for me to adjust to recording, doing a lot of recordings, that was, that was relatively easy. It was just getting comfortable with the other crew of women that I didn't know at all. And I was the new kid on the block and, you know, they always kind of push around a little new kid on the block. And uh, so that made it a little uncomfortable. But besides that, you know, taking instruction from Stevie was great. Uh, meeting like we did. Matter of fact, before we did his project, we did uh, Jermaine Jackson. We worked on him. We did Let's Get Serious. Remember that song? Oh, yes. That was the first song that I actually sang on that was big that hit the radio, you know. So, um it was good. I mean, it, it was a learning experience, um, but we kept a lot of late nights. You know, Stevie don't pay attention to time in that regard. So we were up a lot of late nights and I had to adjust to that too, because <laughs> I'm still an early morning girl. I get up five, six o'clock in the morning, I'm up. And um, so early riser, early, earlier to go to bed, you know, but, um, but it was good. It was, it was a great experience. It was my introduction into the recording industry, which I ended up pursuing quite a bit more afterwards. So feel so right, um, or feels right, uh, 1981. And um, you know, how did you feel about that project? And um, you know, what are your memories of, of that experience? Well, bittersweet, bittersweet. Um, Stevie, you know what song that I had recorded and we were hoping to put on that project? The song, um, looking in the mirror, looking by surprise. Michael Jackson, yeah. Stevie recorded that song and had given that song to me. And so that was supposed to be something that I was gonna record and 
after I left, of course, uh, he said, no, you can't have it. And Richard said, just, just go and talk to him really sweet. Talk to him really nice and ask him because he really wanted that song. Well, we didn't get it. Michael Jackson got it. <laughs> Rest is history with it. But um, we had a lot of songs. I thought it would be more of a combination of funky R&B along with some of the pop-ish R&B. And of course, since Richard was a producer and he was um, very known for pop records, um, we were a little pop heavy and that wasn't really my choice. Um, I can appreciate it more now because no matter what, there is a fan base for that. And I got a lot of fans as a result of that project, but it was a lot of hard work. It was grueling um, in that Richard, sometimes I'd have to do the same vocal 20 times, you know, which a lot of artists have done that, you know, but it was, uh, that was my first project. So I was like, wow, we got to record it that many times. And what's different from the last two or three or four or five takes? I don't, I don't understand, but okay, I'll just keep singing it over and over. <laughs> and uh, so many months later, we finished the project. And um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I didn't know how I felt about it at that time. And unfortunately, it didn't last very long. The relationship didn't last very long in that I had a whole different, like I said, I wanted to be more like Earth, Wind and Fire or, you know, the emotions or James Brown or, you know, Aretha-ish vibe. I wanted that vibe. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that wasn't his lane. So, you know, I think I probably as a youngster, I probably should have done my research a little better. The internet wasn't around so much then. I mean, it wasn't at all, <laughs> but it wasn't around. The, the research would have been word of mouth or me just making inquiries. And I didn't have a mindset for that. I was just happy that I was offered a record deal and that um, it was through a major label. And this is a award-winning producer. And, you know, I met the, um, the, um, Oh gosh, why am, I, why am I going blank? Um, I'm so excited. Just can't hide it. The Pointer um, Sisters. Pointer Sisters. Thank you very much. Yeah, I met the Pointer Sisters. And uh, so I was around them. I met Burt Backrat and Carol Sayre. And who else did I meet? Bette Midler. I met some great people around Richard. Oh boy. Um, I actually went back and listened to that first record because I was not familiar with your first record. I had heard some of the more you know, recent work or right. current to today right. and uh, subsequent things you had done. And mm -hmm. I was surprised at how straight pop it was, you know, so I found that very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Richard, you know, he appeased me in the initial stage before we signed contract. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. But you know, he's going to go with what he is familiar with. And me being older now, I understand that people are going to do what they're comfortable with. He probably said, I don't make records like Stevie or I don't do that. But like I said, that was a discussion we probably should have had. And then he did have someone there, Trevor Lawrence, who actually brought me to him. And Trevor could have done more soul music and he was supposed to be one of the producers. But... <laughs> It kind of turned into a power play and Richard kind of moved Trevor along and just said, okay, you can come in and sit in, but I have the say so over everything. And, um, and that's what made me say, well, I don't know if this is where I belong. 
I don't know if this is where I belong because I kept saying, I, I'm not feeling that music. I'm, I'm not feeling it in the way that, you know, maybe another artist would have been perfect for, but it's so crazy because it still was like a top five album in many countries. And I didn't even know it because I had already left the label by the time it really came out. And uh, I knew it played in America some, but it really played overseas. And um, when I go over there now, Japan, or if I go to Australia, if I go to Europe, they'll pull out those old albums and say, well, you signed my album? I'm like, oh my, they said, you never came over here. I said, I found out through a cousin who went to service that he said, Marvel, like have a number one record here in Paris. And I'm thinking, what, really? And then I found out it sold a lot too. I didn't read the benefits of that, but it did. So <laughs> it did sell. So in my soul sister project, my investor that I have from there is from London. And he said, oh my God, are you the Marvin King that had that album, the green album? And I said, yes. And he said, oh my God. And he freaked out. He said, my brother and I, we were DJs and we played that record. We played the grooves off of it. And he said, and then we copied it and we started bootlegging it. He said, I'm just letting you know. I said, okay, great. He said, they had these underground pirate radio stations. He said, we end up having those. And he said, we would get, he said, Marvin King album fetched a pretty penny. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> So full circle. Now I say, yep, you owe me this investment. <laughs> well, it's like an international Marva King cult, you know, <laughs> but that's great. Yeah, yeah. You never know. You never know. Yeah, You and, never know. And, I would... and I'm sure you learned a lot from the experience too, that you brought yep. forward and, you know, your subsequent uh, studio work. So yeah. And career. Oh, I learned a lot. I learned quite a bit, you know, um, that was, like I said, my initiation into artist dumb. <laughs> it was my initiation because I was like, wow. And I got where I started dreading. I was young, though, you know, I was young and I was like, okay. And I, I was 20 for real then. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking, wow, you got to do these one songs that many times. And I wanted to go play. I want to have fun with my friends. There was, I had no life, you know, my life was get in the studio and sing until just till your voice just said, that's it. I can't do anymore. And um, I guess there was something that he was looking for or that was just his method of production. And he would compare sometimes. He would say, listen to your voice today. Listen to it from yesterday. Listen to this a week ago. And I'm thinking, really? Okay. He said, it sounds different every day. Your voice sounds different. And that was just intriguing to him. So that didn't help the case. And because uh, that made him just say, let me see how many voices we can get out of her and singing the same song. So um, yeah, that was, wow. that was an experience, yeah. <laughs> so Marva, then how did you transition from that to doing a lot of you know background sessions work? Well, from there, um, some of the people that I actually hired on my sessions were some of the big uh, backup singers like The Waters. And uh, then they started calling me for work. And then another person named Alex Brown, she was singing with Stevie when I came. She used to be part of, uh, what was it, the Rayettes, the Raylettes? 
uh, or did she work with Ike Turner? No, she worked with the Ray Labs and she had many friends with Ike Turner. They were from that old school uh, clan of people. And so she would send me out on a lot of sessions and I would be on there with her sometimes. And then I started meeting a lot of producers and writers that they just liked my voice. They liked the tone of my voice. So I started getting a lot of calls and that didn't set too well <laughs> for the backup singers because before you know it, I was quite popular and in demand as a backup singer because one, I'm very quick. Um, I can, and I can do many voices. I can sing, my register is pretty, you know, my range is pretty wide. And um, so I could go in a studio and kind of record the whole thing by myself, or I could blend in and do whatever part is missing, you know? So that kind of, uh, that was good. And it was not bad, it was good for me, but the other singers was like, this is kind of not fair. She's taking our jobs or she's taking our work. So it kind of created an uproar <laughs> in the session industry, but it worked out in my favor because what ended up happening was a lot of the producers, they started calling me by myself. Like um, the Waters um, called me for a Maurice White session um, for Urban Fire. And he what, heard- what, what was that like after you had idolized, you know, oh, Earth, Wind, and Fire and, and those associated acts all those are, years, like you told me? Are you kidding? I was like, uh, once again, over the moon, just over the moon. Um, I was a little calmer with Maurice because by then I had been around Stevie and um, Jermaine Jackson and you know people like that that I idolized growing up. But it was great to be in his presence. Same thing with Maurice. Very calm spirit, calm energy. You know, taskmaster in the studio, but he knew exactly what he wants. You know, opposed to Richard. Richard was guessing. I think a lot of times he's like just keep singing and I'll know it when I hear it. But people like Maurice and Stevie and you know some of the other people I've worked with, they know, they're like, I'm looking for this. And then they'll say, they can tell you, I want this, or I want this kind of tone, I want this kind of breathiness, or I want a full voice, or they know exactly what they wanted. So Maurice was that, but he was serious in that studio. He was nobody's joke, but he must've loved my voice because the next day, he called for me and it was without the waters. So he continued to call me <laughs> by myself from that point on um, to work with him on projects. Um, what so are some of the, I'm sorry, what are some of the projects that you did work with him on? I worked on, I know on Cheryl Wynn, I worked on some projects for him, um, for his solo album. And I'm trying to remember, oh, it was probably like, three projects, three or maybe four that we worked on um, around the same time. And then some years later, I came back and worked with him again, like maybe three, four years later. Honestly, I don't remember. And that's one of the reasons why I got out of the session business. I started working so much and I was making a lot of money, but I was working so much that I lost the passion for it. I started going in sessions and recording. And then when I get to the parking lot, I couldn't remember even what I sang. And I said, that's bad, that's bad. I said, I don't even remember what I just did. So it became, uh, how can I say? It was just rudimentary at that point. And there's some great records 
that I was on. And some of them I didn't remember until the records came out and the internet came along and it started showing my name on there. And then I started hiring PR people and they were going dig and they said, you didn't tell me you were on this record or you didn't tell me you did this or that. And they're like, Marva, what, what are you doing? And I said, you know, I didn't even remember that. <laughs> I didn't remember. And um, sometimes I would listen and go, that sounds like me. And then it would be me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, nothing against any of the artists, but it just got where it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. I was juggling at a point I was juggling with a lot of projects. Then I started wanting to go on the road. You know, I had a child by then and I wanted to start going on the road and travel. So I started going out on the road a lot and I was juggling that even. I was out with Stevie. I would go out with um, Jeffrey Osborne, the Isleys. Um, I was going out with Helen Reddy. Um, I'm trying to think who else would I go out with. And I then actually I actually pulled this one out. <laughs> natural wonder i believe yeah. you're actually on that one on that yep. tour with stevie yeah yep definitely yeah and um yeah i started juggling until i got with prince and uh he said okay if you work with me you can't work with all those artists and all right. well let me let me stop you right there for a second okay. Marla, before we jump into prince because that's a different uh, chapter if you like right yeah <laughs> I wanted to just mention a couple of um, the, the uh, projects that you were involved in and see if hopefully you do remember these ones that, that I wanted to mention. Um, the Gap Band, um, you recorded with them early on and you were on their most successful albums that had all their big hits. Mm -hmm. And I saw you were listed for Gap Band 4, which to me is by far their, their best album that has Outstanding and yes. you know so many great tracks. Um, and I have had Val Young on before, and I think she was on that project too. And yeah, um, do you remember working with the Wilson brothers at all? Of course. Are you kidding me? Yes. I worked with the Wilson brothers. The Wilson brothers used to come by my house and eat up my food or eat up my mom's <laughs> food. <laughs> so yeah, of course I worked with them and I remember it definitely. It's so funny that you would ask that because another friend from way back in the day, matter of fact, she's the one who introduced me to the Gap Band because she was dating um, one of the brothers and she took me by the studio. And I ended up meeting their producer slash record company owner, Lonnie Sims, and I started dating him. And uh, before you know it, I was on all these records and he said, oh, you, can, you can't really sing. And uh, I had a record deal. I had just gotten with Richard at that time. And uh, he very strongly tried to get me to leave and come to sign with uh, total experience so I could be on the record label. But yeah, I sang on a lot of record boy. That used to be some funking good times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just uh, very shortly, or actually the first one is uh, before your solo record came out, but your first one. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm thinking you're doing that thing with Richard Perry that's so pop. And then over here, you're doing serious funk with the Wilson brothers. Right. And I didn't meet them until I signed the record deal with Richard, but it took that long. As I said, with Richard, everything was so methodical and oh, it was extended. And so they were cutting, they were going in, cut, done, put it out. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but yeah, I had one world over here and another world over there. And that was Lonnie's point. And I got it. And I said, but I signed a contract. I can't just walk out of the contract. Little did I know I could have because 
they signed me under age. And I could have just walked away. I didn't know that. And I don't think their business affairs thought about that either. And that's actually how I got out of the deal. The, the attorney said, oh, did your mother sign? I said, my mother wasn't here. And he said, oh, you were a minor when you signed that. And he said, they didn't think to get us. I said, I guess not. I didn't know. Hmm. But, um, but yeah, we were funking. And I used to have a ball over there because Yarbrough and people were over there. I sang on some of their product. And he had this other artist called Goody. I don't know whatever happened with Goody. Goody was really interesting, very unusual. He was like a comedic music artist. So he had comedy everything was comedic about him. It was really funny. But anyway, I, I had a great time over there. <laughs> and uh, you've worked a lot with Lionel Richie, right? Yeah. Um, can you tell us anything about what he's like or working with him's like? Or Yeah, Li uh, Lionel, I met him. Matter of fact, Maurice White referred me to Lionel Richie. And um, he said, yeah, I heard somebody else mentioned her. He said, oh, you got to use Marva. And Lionel called me. He said he had been told about me months before that, but he called for me to sing on Love Will Conquer All. And I'm thinking it was just going to be a session, maybe two. And he stretched it out. It lasted for three and a half months. I was in there recording, just working on the same song. He was still writing it as he was going. And... Um, Oh boy, did I have a ball. <laughs> Cause Lino is, he's just entertainment 24 hours a day. You know, he's comedic, um, he's rhetorical. He's just all these things that, I mean, he just keeps everybody entertained. But uh, we had a lot of fun. James Carmichael is producer, I became very fond of. And uh, Cal, his engineer and just, it was, it was really an interesting time. And we recorded at a studio and I used to see um, Pamela Anderson and the rock and roll band that she was around with her husband. And it's a lot of interesting things went on there as well. But Lionel and I ended up becoming really good friends as well. Molly Crew, yeah. Yep, Molly Crew. Yeah, I used to see them out there and Pam getting into it with one of the other band members, I don't know. They had a very interesting relationship. They had very harsh words to say to each other, but it seemed like the rest of the band just ignored them. Maybe that's just that's just how they interacted with each other. So I would sit and go, wow, this pretty little woman is having these kind of fights with this man. And I mean, they would verbally, oh my God, they would curse each other. But Lionel has always been a fun person, like I said, and I became close with his family and watched his daughter, Nicole, grow up. and. His first wife, I ended up, you know, getting to know the second wife and watch the other two kids get born. And, you know, and to this day, we still reach out to each other and, and talk and everything. So we're still friends. We're still good friends. Was there a, a very different dynamic when you would work with the female artists versus the male artists? Um, you know, when you worked with people like Stephanie Mills or Anita Baker records or what have you versus the Lionel Richie's or the Phil Collins or, you know, the male artists, what was a different kind of vibe? Well, it's a different dynamic, you know, working with females for the obvious, you know, females are territorial in that, you know, especially in the industry and in entertainment. I don't care if it's acting because I've been around a lot of actresses and things like that from a small amount of acting I've done and uh, the music artists as well. Anita was just, she really appreciated me. She really liked me. 
um, which was good. Um, she didn't want me to do any live shows with her. That was fine, but I did a lot of recordings. I'm mean, not a record. I did some recordings on her projects and I did like television shows with her. Um, and she was always good. She was always great, very professional, um, very Midwestern, very conservative to a degree. Um, so that was good. Um, I gotta be honest, most of the other female artists, I didn't get that embracing kind of vibe. <laughs> um, they would always appreciate my voice and they would voice that to other people. Um, but there's been some situations, I won't name the artist, but I worked one day on her recording album, um, album recordings. And after that, the person had brought me in and she told them, don't, don't bring her back. And she said, oh, you didn't like her voice? She said, oh, I love her voice. She said, but I just don't want her back. I don't want her to come back. And she oh, called threatened me. or something? I guess she called me and said, um, Marva, uh, I know you, uh, you were supposed to work for the next week and a half, but uh, sorry, she want me to remove. I said, why, what happened? And she said, she wouldn't say why. She just said, I don't want her to come back. And I said, oh, okay, well, there you have it. <laughs> yeah, there you have it. So if you notice, I've worked on mostly male projects, mostly male projects. Um, but there have been some, you know, that I've met live, like people like Patti LaBelle is a sweetheart. You know, I, I did some backup work with her on television and uh, she and Michael McDonald and Patty is just Patty, you know, and I met her again when I was a few years later when I was with Prince. So yeah, there's some people that are just, they're just who they are, you know, Gladys Knight, same way I met her. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I've always heard wonderful things about Gladys Knight. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and did you record on some Michael Jackson projects? Because <laughs> I've, I read that one place, but then I don't see it on a listing of credits I have. So Yeah, uh, yeah, I did. Um, <laughs> I worked on um, I Just Can't Stop Loving You. Remember that song? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and at first I had a feature on it too. And I think he and Quincy at that time, they were just not seeing eye to eye about some of the production. And it was erased, but... I ended up being in the background on it. I didn't get credited for it. There's a few projects that I've done that were iconic, that turned out to be iconic, that I'm not credited on the liner notes, um, some big ones. <laughs> and that's kind of tough. And, uh, but Michael, I did some of the other stuff on, uh, when he did Captain EO, um, I got some other demos actually that I did with him that records that didn't come out, never came out and I recorded with him. So I did quite a few recordings with him in the studios. Some of it didn't come out that I just can't stop coming, uh, loving you. That did come out though. So, you know, wow. what, <laughs> what, what were your impressions of, of Michael uh, and the encounters you had? Oh, I had great encounters with Michael. We had so much fun. Michael and I ended up being kind of like playmates, just like he used to like to play with the kids. I was a big kid and um, I was in my early twenties when I met him. 
and we used to have so much fun, but he used to get me in a lot of trouble. He used to get me in a lot of trouble. He used to be a prankster. So all his little pranks he would pull until I learned how to stay out of his way, they would always get blamed on me. <laughs> and it would always appear that I'm doing things. So people were yelling at me and telling me off because of stuff that Michael would do. And, uh, and he, oh my God, he got a kick out of that. Oh, he got, he enjoyed himself. <laughs> I think he had more fun than I did. So the, the general public didn't get to see a, a lot of that. No, they yeah. didn't. They didn't. No, they didn't. They didn't. You'd have to be pretty close to him. And at that time, I was the only female outside of his family besides his assistant that could be around him. They didn't allow the people who were over him. They didn't allow anybody to be seen around him. So he used to sneak when he wanted to talk to a woman. He would sneak it late at night and he would call them and stuff. And I would just watch him. And um, yeah, he had a different kind of life. You know, he was worth too much money, I think. Worth a little bit too much money. So even me, they watched me. They had me watched for, hmm, I think it took about a year for them to get comfortable with me being around. But wow. yeah. But you were in that little circle. I was in a small, very small circle. And after a while they were like, okay, she's not trying to date him. And because he actually hit on me when I first met him and I was like, oh my God, Mr. Got to be there and never <laughs> get to say goodbye. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, that's how I felt. And I froze and he just got a kick out of it. I mean, I froze. I literally froze as he circled me, you know, just looking me up and down and making comments. And I'm thinking, oh my God. And, um, you're he like almost, in the thriller video. Yeah, yes. And he almost <laughs> burst out laughing because he's like, she is freaking out. But, you know, of course not. I didn't show any kind of romantic interest. I was dating someone and um, who ended up becoming my husband. And uh, so I continued to be around Michael quite a bit. And we became, did, like I said, we became friends. Did he know or realize you had been on his brother's record years earlier? on Germany? I don't know if he knew or not. I don't know if he knew that at that time. They made sure they told him later because <laughs> they were actually at the same studio that I went and met him at and they were just in another room. But later on, you know, they used to have this little rivalry thing, all the brothers, that's just sibling rivalry. And um, one of them said, well, you know, Marva sang on my record first. And then he said, no, she sang on mine. Jermaine said, no. Mine was the first because he watched two brothers bicker and say, well, she's saying on some of my songs already and uh, she's going to do some of my other projects. And then Jermaine said, but no, mine was the first. And they said, yours. And he said, yeah, let's get serious. And they said, you're on that record. And he said, yeah. He said, listen to her voice. You can hear her voice. And then they were like, okay, well, that's the end of that argument. <laughs> we can't say anything. They could have sang the, girl, so the girl's mine over you. Yeah. <laughs> They were very competitive, but they ended up becoming like brothers, you know, they ended up becoming like brothers with us. And same thing with Michael. Um, he was a great person, great, very kind heart. And I just watched him just how he was with so many people. He cared about people so much, probably too much. And children, he loved children. He just loved to see them happy, he loved to see them happy. So he had so much stuff set up and 
that ended up being his demise. It worked against him because um, he started making business moves that wasn't probably conducive to other people's plans and stuff. So kind of got itself in a mess, got itself in a mess. But um, my God, he was, he was a great man. That was a great man. I've never seen anybody with a heart bigger than his. It was like not even real. <laughs> it just wasn't real. And I had a feeling, I said, somebody this, this loving and this kind to other people, I said something, there's not people that are like that everywhere you go. And I said, all it takes is for the wrong people to see a person like that. And the thing was on one hand, he was this humanitarian who just loved, loved, loved deeply with his heart. But then on the other hand, he was a very shrewd businessman. He was very sharp, very astute. And those two things, I guess, in most business, um, portfolios or platform, they don't go together. <laughs> You're either shrewd and kind of hard-nosed and you try to show no emotion or whatever, or, you know, it's not both. Typically, you don't see those kind of things in unison. And that's what he was. That was one side of him you saw that played and, and he was a kid and, oh my God, we used to play with Teddy Ruxpin dolls and we used to just laugh. Oh, we just had so much fun. And, um, but then, like I said, that other business side, I didn't see that man too many, too many times, not often. Um, that was that other hat that he would wear behind closed doors and he would do business and he would make business deals and he was very quiet about it. And um, he made some iconic moves. <laughs> he made some revolutionary moves, you know, and um, that doesn't always sit with people because then there's interference with revenue. So, but he earned it. Should have been rightfully his. That's why I'm happy to see his children benefiting from it and his mother and his, even his brothers, everybody's doing quite well as a result of uh, what he accrued. Um, too bad he didn't get a chance to enjoy it like he should have, but he didn't, he didn't. He was always on the run. <laughs> he was on the run, so. But I still, I, I appreciate him after my heart mended because I was heartbroken when he died. But after my heart mended, it's like now the legacy and, um, you know, I've had dreams about him where he's just, he's just having a ball in his afterlife. He's just having a great, great time. So I said, okay, that's, that's what you deserve right there. Yeah. <laughs> and you left your legacy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Marva. Um, I have this here, which is conversation piece, which <laughs> I believe you're on with Stevie. And um, as far as I know, this is the only studio record of his you're on, or were you on other studio records of Stevie, Stevie's? Um, well, on Hotter Than July. You're on that one. Mm -hmm. Hotter Than July, yes. Yeah, Master Blaster. Yep, that's distinctly my voice. <laughs> All right, yeah, that's a pretty, that's a milestone right there. That's, <laughs> yeah, um, so yeah, that and uh, let's see, what else with Stevie? I recorded a lot of songs that he still to this day have not put out. There's still so many songs he has. Yeah. had a vault. He has a vault and I don't know what's happening with those records. Great stuff. 
he hasn't put out a record since 2005, you know, so. Uh, that's Steve. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to get him last year to let, I said, let me write something for you. I said, let me write something for you. And he, uh, he was in the studio. I went to the studio. Uh, no, that wasn't last year. That was 2019. My birthday, 2019. I went to his studio. Well, he called. I was, I thought I was done partying because they had a birthday party and I performed. And his cousin, who is his assistant, she said, Margaret performed here at this club. It was a birthday. He said, oh, really? So she put him on the phone and he said, come on down to the studio. I'm thinking, oh, so sleepy. I said, OK, I'll come. <laughs> so about midnight, I go down to the studio and he was in there making a record. And, and I have pictures. Matter of fact, on my social media right now, I posted the picture where I'm kissing him on the cheek. I saw that. That yeah, was a great that picture. Was the yeah. Night of my birthday, and I went in the studio with him, and he had some new instrument because you know he's always getting new stuff. People are always sending him things, and he was like a sitar, and he was playing that and enjoying himself, and he was recording, and I'm sitting there going, "Okay, Steve, I bet the world probably won't hear this anytime soon because he's always recording, and mm. he just file him away. We file him away. I." I don't know. I don't know. I don't get it. I mean, I see this a lot with artists after they become like mega platinum sellers. I don't know if it's the fear of whatever, or they feel like it's not good enough, or I don't know. Second guessing themselves way too much. Yeah, way, way, way. You know, I find myself doing that sometimes, but not to that degree. I mean, their songs, I'm like, that was a great song. And this one was a great song. And that one was, and I'm it becomes like, oh, paralyzing after a while. Yeah. And then um, I can't get attached to any of them because I'm like, you're never going to put it out. And he said, yes, I will. I said, anyway, I'll believe it when I hear it out. Yeah. And you don't hear them. <laughs> There's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much.